Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Fieldcraftsurvival.com, globalrecon.net. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm here with your co-host, Mike Glover. Uh, we have an interesting guest on for today's episode. And we received some emails, some direct messages uh, relating to fitness and how, how can guys prepare and increase their performance levels. So we're going to respond to some of those questions as well as give you guys some tips at towards the end of the episode. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, Mike, I'll hand it over to you. Hey, guys. It's Mike from Phil Craft. Great to be on the podcast again. Uh, just just as far as the analytics we're looking at, uh, the podcast is doing really well on iTunes uh, and, Sa- and SoundCloud. Uh, we appreciate you listening. And today, uh, we're pretty privileged to have an, an active U.S. Army aviator. Uh, goes by the name of Scott. He was a warrant officer who flies Kiowas. And Scott is currently doing the transition from Kiowas uh, to Apaches because the U.S. Army right now is is downsizing or because of budget cuts, probably more political reasons um, than we want to dive into. They're, they're transitioning into different platforms. So, Scott, you, want, you, you there? You on the mic? Yeah, I'm here, man. Hey, good to have you on, man. I, I think the first question is uh, just – if you can tell tell the listeners about yourself and kind of how I know you got a pretty pretty dynamic story about how you became an avi- aviator, but if you can just give us a quick bio and, and a snapshot about your your career thus far. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just want to thank you guys for having me on. Uh, first and foremost, so hopefully I can do the uh, whole KW community some justice here. But uh, yeah, so my name's Scott. Um, currently been serving for seventeen years. Um, I was a prior service infantryman, uh, kind of. Started out, uh, uh, well, about 98. I came in, I was actually mechanized infantry. And then um, I got stationed up at Fort Lewis. Uh, once we finished out the mechanized stuff, we kind of started that medium weight striker brigade. After we did that, I I, I moved over to a, a sniper section. And um, kind of from there, that's that's where I stayed, really. I was uh, um, kind of grew up in the sniper section, um, you know, went to some schools, went through sniper school, graduated Army sniper school. And uh, from there, I moved over to Italy, where I was part of the 173rd Airborne Brigade, uh, did a deployment with them in Iraq and uh, early on in Iraq at the beginning of the war, and then a deployment to Afghanistan with them. Um, basically, I was just a, a sniper a team leader for the uh, two deployments. Um, kind of in the later half of the Afghanistan deployment, I got uh, promoted, so I ended up taking a platoon as a platoon sergeant. And, um, you know, when we came back from the back-to-back deployments, the Army started kind of moving a lot of us around and had had deployments into training positions to, you know, go and share our knowledge with other people. So I ended up getting stationed in Fort Polk, Louisiana. as a <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good times. <laughs> as a uh, observer controller. So, uh, you know, I got to go down there and um, see a lot of the units come through, you know, so in Fort Polk at JRTC, it's the Joint Readiness Training Center. It's where all the units have to come through to kind of prove themselves for combat, if you will. So we try to try to provide the, the most real-world scenario we could, you know, for units coming through. And um, so I was part of a team that would observe units, and we'd conduct, you know, pretty in-depth after-action after reviews for them and kind of give them 
um, some pointers on how things they did well and, and what they could do better. And then um, that just kind of started wearing on me a little bit. And so uh, I decided to go ahead and drop my uh, flight packet. I'd been sitting on it for a while, didn't know if it was something I wanted to do. And I knew that when it came time for me to get out, that I would probably need a little bit more than just uh, being a regular infantry guy. So I, I tried to, uh, you know, put some more tools in my kit bag, if you will. And so I dropped my flight packet and got uh, selected to go to Warren Officer Candidate School in 2008. And from there, you know, just went through flight school. I was there at Fort Rucker for two years, um, you know, got all our primary stuff out of the way. And then I decided to uh, select Kiowa Warriors as my advanced airframe and went through that, uh, learned how to fly that, and then um, got stationed in my first unit over in uh, Fort Bragg. And I was there for about four and a half years and then uh, came came out here to where I am now and um, never thought I'd be retiring the Kiowa, but uh, but our unit has already uh, flown them down to Davis Mountain in uh, Arizona to the Boneyard and shrink wrapped them up. So I'm just waiting on my transition now. Wow. So that's so. So for our listeners who don't know, I mean, th- this is a. I would I would imagine just from my understanding of and experience with uh, military aviators that you know S- Scott's story going from a soldier to a leader to a you know being a, a U.S. Army sniper to being a leader and you know being a platoon sergeant you were you were a sergeant first class right you were an E seven at that time and then transitioning into a mentor position where you're teaching you got kind of like the full scope of really like tapping out your operational career in the infantry, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were definitely, you know, some other avenues I could have, uh, you know, taken as far as, you know, advancing my career, but I, I, in the, in the enlisted side, but I think at that point, like, like you said, I was kind of, kind of tapped out a little bit. I, I just, you know, I had gone from being the, the private to, you know, doing everything somebody told me to do to, you know, being that guy that was able to kind of teach and mentor the younger guys. And I think at that point, it just kind of, I don't want to say that, you know, I was tapped out on teaching and mentoring by any means, because, you know, I always love doing that. That That's one thing I do love about the military. And even as a warrant officer, I can continue to do that. But uh, yeah, I just uh, decided, man, I probably, probably need to do something a little bit different because it, it was kind of wearing on me a little bit. So what is the, uh, Scott, for people who don't know, and even me, I, I like education on it. What, what is the warrant officer rank? Cause you know, for listeners who don't, who don't know about the military, you have, you have the enlisted, you know, ranks from E1 to E9 in every service, you know, Navy, Army, Marines, and then, uh, Air Force. But then you have the officer, um, the branches or officer, uh, corps, and it goes from 01, you know, to, to general staff. Now, what's what is the, the warrant officer? I mean, is there a technical definition or or uh, I know yeah, that they're, they're experts in their technical field, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the thing about the warrant officers. We are the uh, tactical and technical ex- experts in our field. And, there, and there's, you know, kind of like with um, with we call them RLOs, you know, the, the regular officers, the real life officers is what we call them. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like the lieutenants up through general, you know, they, um, you know, we, we have our branches and, 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 um, that warrant officers, you know, you have aviation, you have maintenance, you have uh supply and things like that. 
so there are there are what we call walking warrants, and then there's what we call aviation warrants. Um, and we all have different MOSs, but you know, I think the broadening um, definition for warrant officer is you know we are the tactical and technical experts in our field, and we're the ones that that people go to when they really want to know what it is about that certain field. Um, you know, because because we we just you know like I said, we're kind of the experts in that. Yeah, I know in because I know in for for, for guys who, and gals who don't know in special forces when you become a warrant officer, I mean uh, the bottom line is typically it's because they want to get more operational time, and they be, they're usually prior enlisted special forces guys who transition into a warrant officer field, which is uh, the the technical term is a 180 alpha, and they act as the warrant on the team. They they act as almost like the mediator and have the expertise. And, and their specific field. Um, now, is it typical to be prior enlisted to be a warrant officer? Is that like a requirement? Uh, no, it's definitely not a requirement. Um, you know, and I'll just kind of stick with the the flight aspect of it because I, I, you know, that's more the the side I know. Um, but I think you'll see more prior enlisted in the uh, the walking warrant side the technical it's actually technical warrant is what they're called um you know with those branches most of those people that go from prior enlistment to that technical warrant they stay in the same branch so they like to have that prior service knowledge of whatever branch they're going into and with uh, aviation it, it differs a lot because you know going through flight school i remember when i first got there i kind of thought that i thought oh man yeah you got to be prior service you have to do this but no they they have a lot of different guys coming over from different branches. I know I went through flight school with some Air Force, former Air Force guys, some former Navy guys, former Marine Corps guys. Um, and then we, they have what's called high school to flight school or street to seat. They have guys that come straight off the uh, <laughs> straight off the, the street and they put them in the helicopters. And, you know, that's their first you know experience in the Army. I mean, they go through basic and AIT and then they come straight to Fort Rucker for warrant officer candidate school. Now, officers can become pilots as well, right? Is there a officer pipeline for for flight school? Yeah, they definitely can. Um, that's part. That's one of the branches for officers, and I'm not sure how it works on that side for them when they, you know, go to select their branch. Um, I don't know if it's based off the of order of merit list or how it works, but um, there is, you know, definitely we have officers within aviation, and uh, you know, the officers they fly. Um, they don't fly as much as the warrants do, I think, um, because a lot of it has to deal with them, you know, in their promotion pipeline. As they make rank, they have to fulfill certain requirements, you know, and staff positions and things like that. So as they, you know, keep getting promoted and taking different positions, ultimately, you know, their goal is to take command of an aviation unit. So, you know, their flying hours aren't nearly as much as what it would be for the warrant officers. So, you know, that's the nice thing about, you know, being a warrant officer and a regular line pilot is we, we do, we get to fly a lot. So you guys can stay operational and, and kind of avoid the staff realm that everybody kind of dreads. Yeah, you, you can. And, and it's, you know, we, we have to do it at some point as you continue to make rank, you know, there's definitely those slots that you have to fill at the higher levels, but, um, you know, depending on what unit you're flying with or who you're flying for, you can, you can definitely still get your flight hours in. Well, let's, let's talk about flight school, man. I, a lot of people, and it's interesting because I know me and John 
uh, don't deal in this realm, but it's interesting to, to hear because I don't know a lot about it. Um, I remember in 2007, I had a CW5 from, uh, from 160th from uh, the Night Stalkers who wrote a letter of recommendation for me to go to fight school because me and me and another guy wanted to be A6 pilots. We wanted to fly the, the, the little black Ferraris that had guns attached to them and, and kill bad guys. It's, it, it seemed like such a, a good gig, but we didn't, looking into it, we started doing research on flight school and it seemed like a pretty tough deal. How, how long is flight school and what, what's your take on it, man? Was it a good experience? Yeah. Um, I mean, flight school overall is a great experience. Um, it was, you know, everybody's experience differs, I guess, you know, and that's as with everything in life, but, uh, you know, being prior service, you kind of get thrown into a mix of like we talked about, there's just a bunch of different people there. So it's a, it's a pretty much a melting pot of, you know, all these different walks of life. So you kind of have to reset your mind frame a little bit, um, coming from where I came from in the infantry and, and what we did, you know, and then you kind of get into this realm of where there's a little bit more relaxation and things like that. So you have to change your mindset a little bit, but, um, flight school overall, it's, it's, a di- it, it's difficult. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, I graduated high school and that was it at that point. So I, I went into it and I really didn't have a lot of good study habits. Um, and that's kind of what you need going through flight school. I had gone to Pathfinder school and I think that helped out a little bit because, you know, the attrition rate and that, that course when I went was, was really high and it helped me develop good study habits, but not to where I needed to be. So flight school is a lot of, a lot of dedication to learning your craft. I mean, and you do it in a, I, I would say based on what airframe you choose, you know, you're there at Fort Rucker, um, anywhere from a year, year and a half to two years. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so, so you, you said pick, pick your airframe. So do you have the, the choice to pick what helicopter you want to fly? Yes, you do. Um, when you, so everybody goes through, uh, the basic, you know, flight school portions, which is called, pro, you have primary and I'm sure it's, they've changed a lot of it now, but you have primary, which everybody learns on the, the same aircraft. You know, you got to learn how to hover. You got to learn how to fly. You got to do all that. They're definitely not going to throw you in the advanced airframe and, and teach you how to do that. But, um, so we learned on the bell 206s that was little TH 67 Creek. They were the orange, we call them the orange cream sickles cause they were painted like a, you know, white and orange and you could see them coming from a mile away. You know, you knew there were some student pilots in the area, so watch <laughs> out. But um, so, yeah, you, you you learn that stuff and they take you. They got all these little, you know, side airfields all over the place. And you go out and you just, you know, you you just sit there until you figure it out. And then, um, you know, your instructor pilots and we had a bunch of old crusty instructor pilots. I mean, these cats were flying it, you know, in Vietnam and things like that. So you can imagine they're, um, you know, they weren't too keen on, you know, just sitting there watching you jack stuff up. So, you know, they get pretty frustrated at times, but yeah. So you go through that, um, primaries, I think it's eight weeks and you go through instruments where you learn how to fly in the clouds, bait and, you know, fly off your instruments on your dashboard. And then, um, that's another, I believe eight weeks. And then you go into what's called BWS, which is basic warfighter skills. And that's where you, you know, you got, you're pretty much not flying at that point. You're sitting in the left seat navigating off of, off of maps in the cockpit and, you know, you're doing time on target stuff. So you go through all that and then, you know, based off your test scores, your PT score and everything, it's culminating. They build the order of merit list 
So where you stand in the order of merit list is where you'll end up when you go to pick your airframe. And what they do is they pull you into a big classroom and based off the needs of the army at that point, they'll bring out this big dry erase board and they'll say, okay, we have this many Blackhawks, this many Chinooks, this many Apaches. And at the time it was this many Kiowas. Well, our class only had three Kiowas. And I think we were roughly <laughs> about 20 people per class or maybe more. Yeah. I think we were more. And, uh, you know, it was, it was on you at that point, you know, where did you, where did you leave yourself in the order of merit list? And luckily I was uh, pretty fortunate to be number, uh, I think it was like number three in the class. So I, I took my Kiowa and watched everybody else, you know, fight to, <laughs> to get what they wanted. So what's, so what, tell me, tell me, uh, uh, the insides, what's the, uh, priority list? I mean, are there dudes, I would think that like a Chinook, we call it, we call them shit hooks. I mean, that, that's like, a, for the most part, a transport kind of helicopter. Uh, is that at the bottom of the list? Is there like a prior, priority list of helicopters? I mean, it's funny. Everybody you talk to, and that's the beauty of aviation. I think we all have our own demographic, and we, we all kind of have our own communities, if you will. And, you know, the, there's guys that are sold on, hey, I'm picking the Blackhawk from day one, you know. They were former crew chiefs on a Blackhawk. And there's guys that are sold on uh, picking Chinook from day one and, you know, so forth. But it's funny to see guys that ask, they just absolutely do not want to fly a certain helicopter. And they will go kicking and screaming because, unfortunately, they didn't help themselves out on the OML list. So they end up getting stuck with whatever's left over. Um, but now, you know, it's funny the Chinooks went fast. Um, in our, I remember in our um, selecting class because they only had, I think, two of them. But they went. I think they were the top two to go. Oh um, wow! Yeah, the, crazy. the Apaches and Blackhawks kind of, you know, they were filtered out towards the last half of the class. But oh, that's that's crazy to hear because I would think. I mean, it, when you have like a infantry combat arms kind of experience, I'm thinking I want whatever has got a gun on it. I don't want anything that I'm transporting anybody. And uh, that's kind of crazy, man. I, I think uh, for, from your experiences. Now I have worked with Kiowas downrange, and for people who don't know, um, Kiowas support the the warfighter. Correct? I mean, they're not. I mean, they're they're supporting uh, their reconnaissance aircraft and platform, but they they also support directly the ground troops on the ground in close air support. Is there uh, without? I mean, as much detail as you can give us without going overboard. What's can you give us like kind of like the capabilities of the Kiowa for guys, guys and gals who don't who don't know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Kiowa Warriors, a scout reconnaissance platform. Um, you know, I was kind of talking to John a little bit before we started up, but you know, we are an armed helicopter, but our sole purpose is to support the ground fighter, and I think that's what makes us unique as the uh, Kiowa Warrior community. Is we had a very close relationship with the people that we supported on the ground. Um, no matter where we were at, what we were doing, we would always make it a point to, if we could land, shut down, go over, shake hands, talk to people, you know, we were constantly looking for work. Um, and I think that's what's unique about us. And not only that, it's just the pilots that flew the helicopter. I don't think it was, you know, a lot of it had to do with the mindset of Kyle Warrior pilots and, you know, not just the machine. Um, it was an amazing aircraft and it did exactly what we asked it to do for many years i think uh last count from bell we were i think over nine hundred thousand combat flight hours in a kiowa so i mean it's been an amazing helicopter but yeah we uh we're an armed uh, reconnaissance platform 
Uh, we conduct close combat attack um, for any ground forces that are in need. Um, but, um, you know, we could be armed with rockets, uh, rocket, rocket, rocket 50, rocket hellfire. I mean, there's a plethora of, you know, different combinations we could use. And, um, you know, we carried seven shot rocket pods and, uh, the 50 cal, that was a great gun that we had on the aircraft and then hellfires as well. So we had a lot of different capabilities. We had sensors that we could look and, you know, do a lot of different things with, but as far as being, you know, technologically advanced, we just weren't there like the Apache and the Blackhawks and the Chinooks and things like that. You know, they have what's called, you know, um, glass cockpits, if you will. Um, but you know, we just didn't have a lot of the stuff they had with them. So, um, you know, it was a lot comes with it. There's like an advantage and disadvantage to that. Right. I mean, yeah, I, uh, you know, I always, it's funny because I always like to say we're the only ones that really fly our helicopter, <laughs> but uh, just because, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, are, are get, that are in these advanced airframes that, I mean, you really, it, it's just crazy nowadays. It's but, automated, uh, right? It's an automated system. Absolutely. Systems. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, kind of push a button and here you go. But, um, but yeah, we flew our helicopter. I mean, constantly your, your hands were on the controls and, and you were, you know, we were very power limited. So we had one, we were the only single engine aircraft in the army inventory as far as advanced airframes went at the time for the big army. Um, obviously, you know, um, regiment and those guys have their own thing, but we, uh, you know, we had a single engine and, um, we were power limited. So, um, you know, we used to get it a lot of flack, you know, we were kind of the, the brunt end of a lot of jokes and things like that. But, um, you know, people were like, Oh, you guys won't be able to, you know, fly in Afghanistan and things and that. I mean, but you know, we, we flew, we flew a lot, you know, in, in a lot of these places where people thought the 58 wouldn't be able to fly. So is, uh, now, now you guys are armed with M4s inside the cockpit. Is, is that right? Yeah. That's uh one unique thing about the, uh, the KW is, uh, we were very proficient with, uh, with M4 and, um, you know, to reduce collateral damage if need be, um, you know, we would, we get pretty accurate with that thing and we could, you know, we could put rounds on target with M4 out the door. Um, I know a lot of, uh, KW pilots who are very proficient with, uh, <laughs> making things happen, you know, using their M4 out the door. So, uh, that's one thing, you know, unique thing that we brought to the battlefield, uh, you know, we used to fly with our doors off all the time. It didn't matter if it was, you know, negative 20 degrees outside or what. We would fly with our doors <laughs> off. You know, we'd bundle up. But, you know, we could mark targets. We could drop smoke. Um, you know, we could do a lot of things for the for the ground guys. And like I said, I just think, you know, that uniqueness that we brought to the, the battlefield and, and that close relationship we had with the ground guys, I think it, you know, made for a combat multiplier, definitely. Now, now you you being an you know an army sniper, being an infantryman, and and having all that experience, how how do you think that helped you compared to your peers? Um, was it was it this the, the verbiage? I mean, you guys spoke the same language. I mean, you understood how ground operations were conducted. Was that a big benefit for you? And is there any kind of like stories from war or anything that comes to mind where maybe that was a benefit? Yeah, I think. I think overall it definitely helps, um, you know, just coming from the background I came from and, and knowing, I guess, you know, talking to aircraft before or even just talking on radios in general. Because what a lot of times, you know, you get a lot of guys that haven't been prior service or done a lot of, 
you know, time talking on the radios or things like that. And I think that's a one big thing because that's our lifeline. That's our bread and butter is being able to handle, you know, talking on the radios um, because we have five of them at any given time going off in our headset. So we're managing, you know, and um, you're managing the battlefield. And um, it definitely had a huge impact, you know, being able to um, to talk to guys, being able to kind of see the battlefield three dimensionally, I think helped out a lot, you know, to kind of anticipate what the ground commander was going to do. And you were able to help guide him and move him around, um, you know, to things that he wouldn't be able to see, you know, without you there. So, so it definitely helped out a lot. I think it it played a huge role. Um, you know, and I think that's one big takeaway from combat experience that I've had just in, I think overall in general is, is being able to, to take that ground commander and, and, you know, move him, and help him, you know, kind of maneuver and to get, you know, better eyes on or, or just maneuver his element to a safer place or even give him that breathing room that he needs for that one second to regroup and, and continue the fight, you know. So so it definitely helped out a lot. Yeah, no, I know uh, just from my experience working with Kyle is just having the eyes in the sky, obviously, is just giving the ground commanders better situation awareness, but also you being – a armed platform that can provide close air support or immediate QRF, immediate quick reaction force from the air is a huge, a huge benefit for that ground force commander. And, and it just, it seems to me being in that platform, because I know I've read some 160th statistics that, you know, they're called night stalkers because they fly at night. And there, there's a reason for that because, you know, flying that low um, in, in combat environments uh, you guys are easy targets. Did it, was there ever a period of time where, I mean, you guys were in situations, or that you heard of guys in situations that Kai was getting shot down or shot at? I mean, it seems like that would be a common, uh, a common thing. Flying daylight and you know in the middle of gunfights. I mean, you're the biggest target uh, for the for the bad guys. Yeah, it's uh, that's exactly what we do, you know, and and we we fly low and. Um, you know, not always. I think, you know, I want to give the perception that all we do is fly treetop level, but, you know, there's a time and a place for it. Um, but, you know, absolutely, um, we can hear gunfire. And it's funny about being in the Kiowa is, you know, a lot of people I've talked to other aviators like, oh, man, you can hear that. Yeah, absolutely. I can hear an AK-47 at a thousand feet. You know, it's just very distinct and you can hear it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, being even lower than that, you know, for 200 feet whatever yeah you know sometimes it called for us to to draw fire and we would do just that we would set ourselves up to be the i guess i don't know test dummy to draw the fire so we could figure out where guys were and we'd do it you know we do it in a heartbeat because we knew that uh, that it, it needed to be done and i think that's you know something about says a lot about the kyle the kyle pilots and 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 their i guess uh, grit kind of kind of what they were willing to do they would what they would put themselves you know the situations they would put themselves in to uh to to kind of help in any way they could but yeah there's definitely a few times i remember once you know when we were deployed uh you know it was kind of our first couple days in in country but we had a couple aircraft go out and they decided to get pretty low and they they came back pretty peppered up but uh that's all right we had we had some awesome maintainers that Man, if it wasn't for them, we definitely wouldn't be able to fly the amount of hours we flew. Those guys kept us in the air. That's crazy. What what kind of uh, 
if this isn't an OPSEC thing, I hope, if, if it's not, don't don't worry about it. But what kind of rotations do, do aviators usually typically go on? I would I would imagine like a year rotation would be wearing on aviators who are constantly, you know, flying nonstop. Yeah, so we we would um, you know year long tours, um, mm. and it, it does it, it wears on you because you're flying. It was weird because on the ground you go out, you do your missions. I remember running a, a sniper team out there, and we'd go on our missions, and you know we'd be out for X amount of time and come back, and but you know I always used to see the helicopters fly over, and I'm like, man, I wish I wish I was going where they were going right now, you know, as I'm you know freezing about to get hypothermia or whatever but uh they um you know we fly shifts so whatever shift you were on you know you you have to get used to that shift and you'd usually change shifts every every so often but but yeah i mean there's days when you're sitting 12 hours in that seat in that helicopter and and man it beats you up so um yeah it's a it wears on you and and there's they have things in place that kind of keep us from from flying too much and let us kind of reset a little bit but but yeah you, you fly a lot so now is it we like to talk i mean we've we've had a conversation a couple of times but uh, let's talk about like uh how do you manage that with a family are you're married with kids right i am i'm married we have a uh, one daughter and um it's you know, when I was prior service, I didn't, I wasn't, uh, my wife and I actually met when I was stationed in Louisiana and, uh, we ended up getting married there and that's when I went to flight school. So, you know, it's hard. I don't say it's hard. Um, you know, we have a very strong marriage. Uh, we've been actually through a lot and, um, it's, it's trying, uh, it's definitely trying, but, uh, but you, you manage, you know, and thankfully now, you know, you have all these Skype and everything in place to where you can, you know, be able to talk to your family and things like that. But, you know, there's those, there's those times where you can't contact the family for anything, you know, due to certain reasons. And it gets pretty, you know, people kind of start getting uneasy and things like that. But, but we manage and, you know, like I said, it, it really, you have to communicate, you have to communicate. And I think that's what makes it big is being able to talk, you know, to your, your significant other, your spouse and, and, really work things out but um but you know we've been able to do just that and um you know we haven't haven't had any issues with it so well kudos to you man i, I know you know i can't imagine you know special operations i've done uh a lot of rotations but they're shorter stints and i can't imagine and i talk to buddies about it all the time doing a, a year down range and how taxing that would be on a family uh especially in a situation where you're flying all those hours and they're combat hours it's not like you guys are sitting in a fob you know sitting behind the wire you're you're up in the air a target and you're and you're uh involved in direct combat operations so so i I know from everybody you know me and just me personally me and john thanks for your service and thanks to your wife who's uh you know obviously um courageous to stand by your side all these years and, and loyal and it's awesome to hear you know a good story of of a good family life. No, it's my pleasure. I mean, you know, and I've been doing it for 17 years. I really don't see stopping anytime soon. So, and it's been good to me and my family so far. So we'll see how long we can ride it out. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, I, and, and that, that moves us on to talking about the transition. Now, 
the Kyle was going away. It's packed. It's packed out, and, and and it's done. It's hung up. So so, what are we doing now? I know you talked to me about transitioning into an Apache. That sounds like, uh, you know, coming from somebody who's not an av- aviator, it sounds like a pretty uh, painful, but maybe uh, you know, joyous, adventurous um, adventure that you're about to get yourself into. Is that a long process? Um, it's yeah. So the transitions, um, it's a long process if you're, you know, one of the, so basically what they did is they took all the Kiowa pilots and they put us in a selection board because they, you know, they didn't really know what they were going to do. So they ran us through a selection board and they looked at all our stuff. It was almost like running us through a promotion board and they selected, you know, their top 100 and their alternative 100 and so forth, so on. But Based off of that, you got your selection and your your year date. So there's, you know, fortunately I'm going this summer. Um, there's some guys that are definitely having to wait, a, you know, a year or so more. But um, that's the that's the long process part about it. Um, as far as the transition itself, it's just you know kind of I didn't even say changing the mindset because we're not changing our mindset. We're bringing the uh, Kiowa mindset to the Apache now. So um, and I know that kind of might ruffle some feathers and it already has a little bit, but, but that's who we are as, as aviators, you know, Kyle warriors, we're air cab, we're scout pilots, and we've got a certain mentality and we're bringing it to the Apache. So, um, it's not learning how to fly all over again. So it's the, you know, the transition isn't going to take too, too long. It's just now we're learning the specifics of the Apache, which is a very intense aircraft and it was, you know, it's a very well designed aircraft for, for what it was designed to do. And, um, it's just, there's a lot of systems involved that, that we're not used to. So that's pretty cool. I think, uh, just, just making that trans transition into, to any airframe, uh, just looking at it from the outside in would be, uh, per a pretty difficult one, but, for an aviator, obviously uh, that you already are moving from that to, you know, you, being a technical, I think, you know, it's almost like you're, you're an actual, uh, like race car driver, um, that, that rides road courses. And now you're moving to like an F one and things are automated. And it's like a, you know, it's like a fast mover. It's like moving from an A 10 aircraft, you know, that's cable controlled, then moving to a fast mover that's automated. Do you think that's going to be a tough transition for you? Or do you think you, are you are you looking forward to that transition and getting in that platform? Um, I mean, I'm looking forward to uh, you know flying again. That's first and foremost. Uh, I you know the Apache, it's kind of a love hate thing. I know a lot of guys either love it or they hate it. I'm kind of in between on it. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of maintenance involved with it. Definitely, when you get into something that you know that in depth of a of a, a helicopter, but. Um, it's, um, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I can't really speak a whole lot on it other than, you know, what I saw out of the guys I worked with when we were deployed. But, uh, I mean, it's an amazing aircraft. And, you know, like you said, I mean, the, the 58 was like a little, we were nimble. We were, you know, able to maneuver and we we're very, you know, we could, we could do it quickly. Um, you know, this is a, a bigger aircraft. So, you, you know, you got to remember you got a lot behind you that you're, you're, you know, <laughs> you're pulling behind you a little bit. So it's a big aircraft. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to the, the capabilities it, it has and, and being able to kind of put those to use. Cause I know they have some pretty awesome capabilities. So awesome, man. Yeah. So Scott, we actually have a, um, 
a, a global recon contributor. Her name is Adrian Hatcher, and she was the first female Apache pilot in the Missouri National Guard. Uh, so we had her on for an episode, but it was more like of an interview about her. But I guess we can get her on for a later episode and maybe have you on and you guys can kind of helicopter it up. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so I think she flew the Apache for eight years and then she transitioned into a, another airframe. I, I forget uh, which one it was exactly. But um, so, Scott, I know that you and your brother raised some money for a nonprofit last year. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, so my brother, um, Shane, he runs a CrossFit No Surrender out of Covington, Louisiana. Um, you know, just kind of how we got it started. He, uh, you know, when my sister, when his sister, my wife was diagnosed with, uh, with breast cancer, he started running a fundraiser, which he does every year. He does 24 and 24. And um, he raises money every year for breast cancer. And, you know, he and I got to brainstorm and, and you know, we were like, well, let's let's definitely look at something that's close to home for both of us. You know, he's a, he's a prior service vet. Um, he did a lot of contract work as well. And, um, you know, it's PTSD is something that has kind of really hit us both personally and, and, and close. And I've seen a lot of my good friends go through it. Um, so we decided let's go ahead and, uh, you know, raise some money. Uh, we weren't really sure, you know, how we were going to go about doing it or who we wanted to do, you know, the, the fundraiser for us. So we reached out to a few places and, uh, and we found one that we felt comfortable with and, uh, we went ahead and, and started setting everything up. Um, called it miles to go just because I feel like, you know, we, we still have so much to do and so much we can do to, to help people out with the battle and PTSD, whether it be, you know, anybody vets, um, you know, anybody that, that is, you know, puts their, puts it on the line every day. Um, so, we went ahead and um, started this fundraiser. Uh, so we uh, started out in Covington, Louisiana. What we, we did was we asked people to uh, raise uh, money. We were going to do a 22-mile road march uh, carrying 22 pounds, and we asked everybody to, uh, that wanted to participate to raise $220. Now, we weren't turning anybody away, obviously, so if anybody wanted to participate, we, you know, any donation – um, would it help? So we were actually able to we raise over $11,000 for the organization. And, um, you know, it was just a really good turnout. And it just brought a lot of people together. I think that that was one good thing about it. You know, not only helping, you know, an organization to help people that are going through stuff like that, but, you know, to be able to bring people together from all walks of life that can, you know, they, they walk, you know, 22 miles, man. People, People put their rucks on and they'd never done it before in their life. So it kind of gave them a little, you know, a little push. And, and, and man, it was pretty amazing to, to see. So that's a huge gut check. That's awesome. Man. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that that's pretty awesome, man. It's, that's very, um, it's a great thing. And it's just amazing to see how people can come together uh, around a good cause. And it's always something that we like to support, and um, you know maybe we could do some stuff going down the line. Uh, so, so it's interesting. So you you have a bit of a fitness background. I'm sure, in order to maintain your readiness for deployments, you have to keep like a certain level of fitness, as Mike has stated in previous episodes and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, I know Mike, you you get got a couple of questions on DMs and emails, and so have I. So here's a question. I wanted to bring up uh, 
I, I, see, I received this in a direct message, and here's what the guy said. Uh, I wanted to say I love the podcast. I'm prior active duty and now National Guard with a wife and children. I'm 36 years old and in the last couple of years have fallen heavily out of shape. I'm finding it exponentially harder to find the motivation to get back into Army fit shape. I want to serve for as long as possible and don't want my body to be the reason I have to stop early. Any and all help would be greatly appreciated. I look up to and respect Mike and yourself immensely. So, Mike, what uh, what what advice can we give this guy, and for anyone really who who wants to get back into shape? Uh, you know, as a, that's a little bit of a different um, approach mentally to to uh, get back into shape. Yes. So, I, I think it's 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 twofold. It's physical and mental, right? Because. Uh, I'm I'm the same age as this guy. I, I I came in the army at 17. You know the army will wear you out, and and the the hardest thing for me throughout my military career is the lulls that I've had, where I've kind of like come back from a deployment, and I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna just get off my routine and just give myself my body a break, and then trying to get back into that routine, I you know coming from a high state of physical readiness. And then just let myself go just a little bit. And, you know, when I, when I say let myself go, I mean, hey, I'm not going to do a five-mile run. I'm going to do a, you know, a three-mile run. Or, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do uh, a CrossFit workout. I'm going to do a, a something a little bit more less impact. So I was still active, but st- still trying to get to that optimal fitness level was difficult. So I, I talked to a lot of civilians at the gym that I go to about, you know, ways that they, they can get back into or get – themselves into shape and when you talk about this question you know he's asking how can he get into special operations or uh, to me it's just army shape because the army's going once you get into the army itself as i stated in previous podcast uh your 25 meter target is basically training in ait fitness and then they're going to whip you into shape and then you're going to advance and get more and more into shape you know basic training and infantry um Advanced individual training is a total of 15, 16 weeks, uh, at least the last time I checked. So it's a, you know, you're talking about 15, 16 weeks of, of getting whipped back into shape. One thing is, you know, age, everybody knows this. It's, I mean, it's, it's obviously science, but uh, we know this between the three of us, that being in your 30s, as you increase in age, you decrease your level of natural producing testosterone, uh, which helps with recovery, helps with sleep, helps with regulation of basically all body and, and, and physical function. So a lot of people's advice would be, hey, just hit the gym harder, you know, eat better. And that's real easy to do. But I'm a little bit more, uh, a little bit more surgical and deliberate about my actions when I look at this approach. So the number one thing I would do is go get my blood blood um, work done. I, there, now, if you Google um, blood work for athletes, there's different panels that you can get tested to see what you're what you're lacking, because a lot of the times um, you might be deficient in something uh, like in a specific uh, vitamin, um, you know, a, spe- a specific portion of your blood panel might show a deficiency that you can correct that actually will increase your ability to recover. Um, getting your testosterone checked out. Um, I, I don't want to promote this, you know, I, but I know there's a lot of guys getting it done, and I've seen the benefits. 
obviously it's like anything else. It could be abused, but there's all these testosterone shops that are opening up that offer, you know, uh, what do they call it? Testosterone therapy to increase levels of testosterone. Now you can get this prescribed, which under, under a physician and, and the right way is they're doing your blood work. They're seeing your levels aren't optimal. They're getting you to an optimal level, which will obviously increase your ability to maintain muscle, uh, recover from exercises, et cetera, et cetera. That would be, for me, I know it's kind of unorthodox, but for me, that would be the first approach is to diagnose um, and can I get like a diagnostic panel of what is currently going on with my, my body and my system. The next thing is the physical fitness approach. Look, a lot of guys want to get dynamic when they look at special operations, physical fitness. You know, they want, they want the answer, the golden key. There is no golden key. There is no golden answer. Even when we talk about objective fit, you know, I got a special forces buddy who runs a, a great program called Gorilla Athlete. These are the programs that I recommend because it's not one, one solution is going to give you all the answers. It depend, There's a lot of questions that need to be asked from the trainer, from the coach, from the gym, from the facility before you can get anything sp- specific. So I'll say that in physically my recommendation is look at yourself and figure out uh, what you have to do physically to get yourself back into shape based on your um, physical fitness level. I don't know this guy's physical fitness level, level, but I will tell you general fitness is the start to get him back, to whip him back into decent shape. He wouldn't be the guy I would recommend to maybe potentially go to, to a gorilla athlete or to go to CrossFit gyms and then, and then break themselves off and then and end up with bad um, mental results because they're, they're like, man, I'm, I'm so out of shape. They, they, they get uh, down on themselves and then they don't rebound uh, appropriately. I would say, hey, you know, start with basic fundamentals and then work yourself um, into a basic workout. Now, John, we talked about uh, calisthenic workouts. For me, physically, that's the best way to start because you're pushing and pulling your own body weight. You don't need a lot of equipment to do it. And we actually discussed the workout prior to this that might benefit this, this particular case. Uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and, and that's one thing I, I've experienced uh, being in good shape, uh, getting injured, falling out of good shape, and then getting, having to get back into shape. So this is something that I've done a couple of times. Um, so what I'll say, I'll say on the matter is you want to start basic and, and, and don't try too much. Like Mike said, uh, maybe you'll, you'll go to a program and you'll realize that you can't do as much as you thought or, or as much as the, the, the workout tempo requires, and then you get down on yourself. So you want to start small and you want to start very basic uh, push-ups, pull-ups, or, or if you can't do pull-ups, you know, there's workouts you can work towards. That, that'll help you work towards pull-ups. So uh, I'm actually going to give you guys a basic calisthenic workout. And th- this is something that can be used at, at, at a very basic level. And as you improve your fitness levels, you can increase it using the same format that I'm going to give you. So uh, basically the workout is a, a combination of pull-ups, push-ups, dips, and squats, bodyweight squats. So what you do is you do one pull-up, one push-up, one dip, one bodyweight squat, and then two pull-ups, two push-ups, two dips, two bodyweight squats. 
and you just keep working up. And so if, if you're going to start, like for this guy who sent, sent me this message, if, if you're going to start with this workout and your fitness level is low, just, you know, start up, go up to five and see how your body responds. If, if five hurts you and if five is a struggle, then you stop at five. Now, and, and you can keep going up. If you get to five and you feel like five, you still got some more in you, then go up to seven or go up to eight. And and then you can take a break. You know, you take 15-minute break, 20-minute break after you reach your number. And then you can work down from that number. So if you get to seven, take a 20-minute break and then start at seven. Do seven pull-ups, seven push-ups, seven dips, seven squats. And then work down. So you do seven and six and five and four and so forth. So th- that'll be my advice. Like Like Mike said, you know, uh, you know, get get your blood work done, figure out where your deficiencies are, and then that'll help map out your training path going forward. The uh, I had another question from a guy who whose name is uh, Jake, and he was trying to trying to train it up, and maybe Scott could chime in on this one. Um, th- this guy is trying to improve his two mile run time, and I know a lot of guys. Um, talk about trying to improve their two-mile run time because they want to improve. Um, it's a, it's a in the in the U.S. Army, it's a part of the Army physical fitness test, which you know is two two minutes of push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups, and then a two-mile run. Um, Scott, just you know, being in the Army and and being part of that, I'm sure you guys guys have APFT requirements. Have and being a former infantryman is even more of a bonus. Can you give this guy advice on how to how to how you improve your two mile run time? I'm a warrant officer. What the PT? No, I'm just joking, man. Um, <laughs> for real. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm a real big fitness guy, um, uh, and I I love working out all the time. So you know I, that's actually uh, I recently was just trying to improve my two mile run time because you know I'd kind of fallen off a little bit just because our op tempo was real high and. So, and I, I think a lot of guys, they, for military anyway, you know, they get, they get tunnel visioned on, oh, I just have to train, you know, sit-ups, push-ups, and a two-mile run and things like that. And I, and I think it kind of goes a little bit beyond that. But for running anyways, I mean, what I used to do, and I, and I still do it, I like to uh, kind of change it up a little bit. You know, I don't – anything over five miles for me is, is way too much. I mean, nowadays anything over four miles – gets a little little much but i'll you know i will run that you know what i'll do is i'll kind of almost do a circuit style but i'll do it with mile you know so i'll i'll run one mile you know as fast as i can and i'll rest for you know let's say three minutes and then i'll run that mile again and i'll give myself a goal to try to get underneath that time for that mile you know and then i'll I'll rest again and then i'll give myself another goal for the third mile and usually i'll do it for like those three miles you know, and it's not a dead sprint. I usually go to maybe, you know, I'd say probably about at 85%, you know, of my max just so I'm, I'm not, you know, burning out all my, you know, oxygen in my lungs right away, but you know, I'm, I'm pushing myself. So and that really helped me, you know, I was able to drop my two mile run time from, I think it was 15 minutes and I got it all the way down to, I think I was right at a 1245. So I really did that circuit training a lot and, you know, I would work sprints into it, but at the end of the day, not too many. Um, but that really helped me a lot. Where if I was going to do like a four-mile run, I would say, okay, hey, I'm going to run my first two miles at a, 
you know, whatever minute mile pace. And then I would increase my next two miles and I would try to hold a faster pace. So let's say my first two miles were a, a 7.45. Then my next two miles after that, I would try to run at like a 7.30 or a 7.25 just to, to, you know, and push yourself to do that. I mean, obviously, I know those are, you know, high numbers or, you know, low numbers, but, you know, set those goals and then just try to get to them. But I think overall that that helped me out a lot. Yeah, it's funny because uh, the, the guy who asked the question was also doing long runs. And then you said, you know, you don't run anything over five miles. And I, and, and people need to understand that there, there are periods of time. It's hard. I remember training up for selections and the selection requirements were high endurance agility for long periods of long periods of time, whether it's a long range movement with a heavy rucksack. Um, there is a difference and, and and we want to clearly delineate this. There's a difference between operator fit physical fitness levels and you know training up for a selection or being even a soldier in the, in the uh, regular army. So there's different levels. The the same shape that you're going to be when you're trying to train up for selection is a completely different shape that you're going to be in when you're actually an operator. And uh, I remember going to selection and having to drop 15, 20 pounds or not having to drop, but just by default of the programs that I were, that I was doing was, you know, I was walking long miles, uh, with a rucksack. I was running long distances cause I knew I had to run long distances. But for these guys who were, who were really looking at that 25 meter target, focus on, you know, like Scott said, like improving the two mile run with that specific goal in mind and don't worry about you know the operator fitness. Worry about the two mile run. Uh, if you're trying to increase push ups, look at the exercises, um, the push up itself that's going to help you improve. Uh, like John describes, you know the calisthenics, pushing it, pushing and pulling your own body weight. There are plenty of things that you could do to make you strong, and that's and really that's the premise and, and kind of the model behind a lot of new functional fitness is. Look, you can go in the gym and do compound movements and make your muscles look bigger, but there's also a a huge benefit in what we call functional fitness of pushing and pulling your own body weight at different angles at you know and different uh, movements at different intervals to be able to to be functionally fit, well, which means you're, you're basically to me it means that you're you're strong, but you're you're able to have the agility or the endurance to get through long duration, um, physical fitness requirements. So yeah, I appreciate that advice, Scott, cause a lot of people, you know, who aren't, who aren't tied to the military don't really get to hear, you know, from, I'm so, I mean, I, I couldn't, I could do a wind sprint right now, about a hundred meters and, and dest- destroy it. But after that, I think I'd be long winded, but, um, I mean, I'm a different kind of shape than I, than I was when I was in the regular army and and that's going to vary depending on where you are. So that was a good insight. Um, I know we, me and you had discussed this nonprofit or the a nonprofit that we wanted to benefit, and we had talked about moving forward and maybe the fall time, depending on your schedule, uh, at your brother's gym. What's what's the name of your brother's gym? Yeah, so my brother uh, Shane, he runs a gym. It's called CrossFit No Surrender. Um, he started that. You know, he used to personally train a lot, but he 
wanted to get into something different. So he, he started that up. Um, he CrossFit No Surrender, um, and that's out of Covington, Louisiana. And, and, and is there a website for it, that? Absolutely. It's www.crossfitnosurrender.com. CrossFit No Surrender is all one word, no spaces. So, And he's got an Instagram as well, right? He does. It's at CrossFit No Surrender. Awesome, man. I, and something – so a buddy of mine – and this, this is just maybe a warno on it. A buddy of mine um, who used to be a sniper with me in the SIF, he owns a CrossFit gym in North Carolina in Fayetteville um, called CrossFit Guild. And I, I don't know if you saw the comment, but I posted it on social media – and then he posted the comment, hey, I, I own the CrossFit gym. And I forgot all about him owning a CrossFit gym. But CrossFit, you know, I, I never not – I knock CrossFitters because I, some of it's funny. There's some funny memes out there and it's, it's funny. But the, the actual workouts and what they're putting out is, to me, a good product because it's high-intensity interval training. It's, it's, it's core functional movements. It's core – core lifts um and it does nothing but make you faster and there's um it makes you stronger there's some debates whether whether uh it, it could potentially injure you but i look at it you know at, at face value just like anything else you could get injured you know walking into your gym um you know so if it, it it fits the mold for the perfect representation of the kind of like nonprofit support we we're looking for and I thought, you know, I had an epiphany this morning just reading that comment that CrossFit is a it's a franchise, correct? It's a it's a franchise business meaning you could get qualified and then you can get a CrossFit gym um going through training. And I think that's how it works. Yeah, they uh basically you go and you get your uh, certification. Um yeah, I think they have a level 1, 2 and I think they're even working on a higher level cert now, but yeah, once you get that and you open up, if you use the CrossFit name, obviously, you know, um, you have to work it out with them. But, yeah, it's it, they basically have a headquarters, and I think it's out in California. But, but yeah, so you're right. It, That's how it works. So when I think about this, I think about this like, you know, obviously CrossFit being everywhere um, and doing a fundraiser at a specific CrossFit gym – if we can get more CrossFit gyms maybe involved at the same time hack and maybe do all do the same workout of the day at the same time nationwide, that this could be something pretty big. And we can, and instead of it turning, you know, you guys did an awesome job of, of raising 11 grand that maybe we could raise, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, um, to go to a good cause, which is undetermined. Um, but, you know, that's just, just something to think about and just me, me throwing out there. John, you got any input on that? Yeah, um, I think uh, I actually know um, one of my Bar Stars team members owns a CrossFit gym in New Jersey, which when you and two come to New York, one of the classes, the knife fighting classes are going to be held in that gym. So, yeah, it's funny. Coming from a, a calisthenic background, we kind of – rib my friend a little bit so i i enjoy the um the philosophy of the training style of crossfit which combines calisthenics with power lifting you know the squats um clean and press things like that 
so I, I think it has huge benefits. So in the whole fitness realm, there's always like the new, the new trend or something new that's coming out. Like, and, and I, I believe the the military PT tests are, are reflecting the changes of the the times. Uh, my only thing that I that I absolutely it annoys me about CrossFit is the um, the pull up part. But that's just because I'm a pull up guy, and um, we in in Bar Stars we heavily emphasize on doing the strict form pull-ups um but but everything else i absolutely oh you're talking about the kip like that what they call it a kip up right yeah 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 (laughs) yeah so that's like looked down upon in 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 that community but but everything else about i absolutely love and i I think it's a great thing that uh people are able to open businesses that benefit uh people's health and and a lot a lot of uh what people don't really talk about much or, or realize is that when you have, like, let's say a CrossFit gym opens up and you get, you know, I don't know, 30 members or whatever, you now have 30 people who are going to be healthier and long-term, that's going to decrease the chances of them having health issues down the line. So if you open up 20 CrossFit gyms in a 50-mile, you know, in a 100-mile radius, you just opened up 20 uh, centers that are going to decrease the the health risk of all the members going for the future. So if let's say someone's 75 years old and and they didn't have a job with a pension or whatever and and all their health benefits, when they get sick and they go to the hospital, the taxpayers are footing that bill. And it's interesting right now in in Manhattan elements of of Bar Stars are in talks with the local government to set up more fitness parks and more uh, and give people easier access to some of the, some fitness equipment and and we're going to try and run programs through the city where we we teach free classes and, and things like that and there are huge benefits for that and um i think it would be a great idea if we can actually get a bunch of crossfit gyms nationwide to join in on scott's and his brother's uh fundraiser and 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 just show people that we can do a lot when we all come together yeah, I think that'd be awesome, man. I I think the more the merrier, and uh, more to follow with with Scott and his brother Shane. Uh, we'll we'll have some conversations offline. Um, before we close it out, man, I just want to uh, give you guys a little tidbits and 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 mindset. You know, we talk about physical physical conditioning, and uh, I like to add, you know, mindset because I think mindset is the most important aspect of physical conditioning. In fact, recently, I don't think we put this out there, but recently we had a professional baseball organization um, reach out to us and talk about that mindset and the application of warrior mindset in athletics. And me and John have some good ideas, as well as two from Rona Tactics, talking about objective fit, um, about integrating warrior mindset into different programs. And I talk about survival psychology a little bit on on my social media, on my blogs, and the problem that I see over you know overarching with the whole PTSD, with the whole uh, survival psychology, the whole realm is reactive. We're we're concentrating on an effort of, of uh, diagnosing and trying to deal with symptoms instead of dealing with the actual issues and. People don't have a lot of tools to do, like soldiers don't have the tools, aren't taught the coping mechanisms, aren't 
taught really a warrior mindset. So like when you got a guy like Scott who was a U.S. Army sniper before he becomes a helicopter pilot, he is so much more mentally prepared to be in that cockpit and to get in a gunfight and get through that gunfight. And if something goes wrong, to deal with that um, after the fact. And the, the failure I'm seeing you know, in, in, in really government organizations, to no fault of their own, it's the government. You know, it's, 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 it's temporary. It's always changing. Um, nothing's really sustainable. There's a lot of organizations out there, private that are private organizations that are that are coming out with good solutions. Um, I, I, I like to I, I don't like to pimp my own company on this podcast because it's not a place for me to pimp my organization. Um, but some of the training that I do, uh, w- one of the training courses that I offer is called the Ops Course. But the acronym Ops is is, is observe, prepare, and survive. And we'll talk about the the P and the S, but today, just real quick, I'll talk about the observe. And the ops process is what happens when you're confronted with an actual potential survival catastrophe, meaning something's about to go wrong. It could be a man-made or natural catastrophe. The first thing you need to do is observe, right? So if I'm in a school and an active shooter kicks in the front door and you hear a gunshot, you're not going to recognize that gunshot. And pe- typically people don't, you know, from the psychological case studies that I've, that I've read and studied, most people don't recognize the signs of an actual catastrophe until literally it's too late, until the dude kicks in the front door of the classroom and now they're confronted with a gun and it's too late. They're going to they're potentially be killed. So the first thing to do, I just wanna, yeah, go ahead, John. It's interesting you say that. Is that when we had Alex Carlados on a couple of episodes ago talking about the, that incident on the train in, in, in France? He said he uh, initially he said he heard what he thought was a gunshot and breaking glass, but he just thought nothing of it. And I just think it's interesting that you brought that up. And then I, when you when you brought that up, I remembered what he said. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, because he he said he in fact he said he got tunnel vision and was completely focused on the task at hand, which is what happens when, when cortisol is dumped into your, into your system. Um, it starts reacting. You start uh, narrowing your focus, and the extremities, your eyes, um, start focusing on the threat, and everything else starts lulling. And, you know, your, your, your vision even lull. Parts of your vision can lull. You'll, you'll lose, as he stated, his peripheral. So yeah. the, the, the first piece of that, like I talk about conscious and unconscious thought and, you know, the observer and, and, and other podcast, the first aspect of that is, is observation. So it's almost like uh, an immediate action drill. In the infantry, Scott will know this from, from being in the infantry, when we take contact, the first thing we're, we do is we have an immediate action drill, but we have to react accordingly. And typically, when we receive the initial barrage of gunfire, we identify the threat and give the direction and distance. That entire inject, you know, that training inject that we uh, train soldiers to do is basically getting to them to snap out of the actual gunfight itself, which is, you know, it's, it's dangerous. People may die. But when it pops off, they start thinking. And, and, the, and the first thought is, I just received fire. I need to determine 
the direction and distance, and I need to announce that to my friends who have guns with me, and we need to lay down suppressive fire. So it's part of like an immediate action process. So when you look at a, a natural man, man, man-made catastrophe in the civilian world or the civilian realm, you have to get your mind to uh, – or train your mind to focus on the task at hand. The first part of that task is observe. You need to stop, look, and listen, and you need to definitively understand what's happening. And a lot of people die in survival-type situations or catastrophes because they freeze. Inaction, and I, and I say this all the time, hope is not a course of action. Wishful thinking is not a course of action. Freezing and thinking about it is not a co- course of action. If you hear something that's out of the ordinary, if you have a feeling that's out of the ordinary, listen to your instincts. Those mechanisms that are inside your, your person, inside your body, are natural mechanisms. Listen to them and then follow through with something. Uh, any reaction, any action, just like uh, almost like uh, when you're looking at leaders making a decision, any decision is better than making no decision at all. Be decisive, and that's the first part of, of, of the observe. Perceive, look at the per, perceive the threat, look at the potential indicators, and perceive if there's a potential um, physical action that needs to take place. If I hear gunshots or something that sounds like gunshots, and I'm in an area where that would be completely out of the ordinary, I, you know, as a, as a gunfighter, as somebody who's been trained by the U.S. military to save lives, if I'm carrying concealed, I'm running towards the gunfire. If you're not in that capacity and you're, civilian, you're not armed or with your family, you need to grab your family and move in the opposite direction. And, and don't depend, don't be that deer in the headlights where you're trying to figure things out and you're like, I'm going to wait for it to transpire. I'm going to wait for things to like happen more. That's how people get killed. And you'll become that, you know, I talk about the 10, 80, 10, you'll be that 80% that wind up killed because they froze. Um, that's all a little bogged down and, and digressed a little bit, but, uh, I, I think it's important that we talk about that next time. I'll tell you the P, um, and the acronym and we'll go from there. Yeah. I think that's a great piece of advice, Mike. And, um, uh, and, and like you said, if you're in a in that capacity where you don't have the ability to react, you know, through your training or through your career, or you're not armed, uh, the best thing to do would be to move immediately away. And and I think that's a a great piece of advice that the listeners can take away. Um, you know, if if you fall in that category, so uh, you know, and and like Mike said, on the next episode, he'll he'll continue to get into this for those of you who are interested in in the mindset. So, uh, you know, we had a great episode today. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I just want to thank Scott for coming on and, and sharing some of his experience. And uh, as always, you know, we appreciate the feedback and, and the listeners who are um, helping us continue to give you guys a good show. Uh, so uh, if you have any questions for anyone who has any questions about anything they heard on the podcast, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And as, as always, you know, we respond to every email, we respond to every direct message, and, and we try and answer questions on the show in case anyone has those same questions and they can have the questions answered for them. So uh, that was the end of the show. You know, we're going to wrap it up now. Uh, Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. 
His Facebook is Fieldcraft LLC, and his Instagram is Soft Survivor. That's S O F Survivor. Uh, my website is globalrecon.net. My Instagram is IG Recon, and my Facebook is FB Recon. Uh, and Scott, can you can you go throw out those the, the website for your brother and uh, his uh, social media handle? Yeah, absolutely. So my brother's, uh, you can hit him up on um, Instagram. It's at CrossFit No Surrender, all one word. And then you can reach him at www.crossfitnosurrender.com. Uh, and if you guys have any, anybody has any questions for myself, I'm kind of getting new to the Instagram thing, but you can find me at, it's all caps, scout, S-C-O-U-T underscore pilot, P-I-L-O-T five eight. Um, that's scout underscore pilot 58. If anybody has any questions for me, you can uh, hit me up on uh, Instagram. Or if you have any uh, questions, you can also email them to me at jabroni, J-A-B-R-O-N-I underscore five at hotmail.com. Nice. All right. So that's it. We'll see you guys in a couple of days. Peace. Peace.